Hebrews 11, if you'd like to open your Bibles to Hebrews 11. We are finally going to start talking about the people of Hebrews 11. We've spent mm, five or six weeks now on faith and endurance and righteousness. And today we come to the first of our individuals in verse 4. This morning I'd like to just read verses 1 to 4 of Hebrews 11. In a little while we'll be going to Genesis 4 and looking at the story there briefly. But uh, trusting that God will teach us from his word. So I'll read aloud and if you'd like to follow along, Hebrews 11, 1 to 4. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous God commending him by accepting his gifts, and though and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Many refer to Hebrews 11 as the hall of faith. If you read commentaries on Hebrews 11, you'll see that phrase from time to time. And whatever is meant by that phrase, hall of faith, It's been my observation over the years that hall of faith is often heard and understood by a good number of Christians as some kind of hall of fame. Uh, I don't know how the term hall of faith came to be, but it sounds to me an awful lot like we're making a play off of hall of fame. We've got all these people that are laid out for us and and that's where our minds go to. And it's, it's like you go to... Uh, NFL Hall of Fame in Canton and you have the busts of all these different great players over the years and you marvel at their accomplishments and you you see the memorabilia of footballs or uniforms or helmets and you hear their stories and you are to walk away and be in awe of those individuals that they are some kind of super athlete in the Hall of Fame And because of that connotation in our mind, and I don't know how people hear it in other countries where they don't have Hall of Fame type stuff, but because of that connotation in our culture at least, I think that Christians have a tendency, and I I know this was true for me and I've heard this from other people over the years. We often put those people on a pedestal. We elevate them to the highest levels and we hold them up as examples to follow and emulate. So here we have this list of people, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Moses, uh, Abraham, Sarah, and then a brief list of other people at the end. And we walk away hearing messages of be like Abel, be like Abraham, be like, and we've got all these names. And while I know there's good intentions behind that, 
I think that's the last thing the writer wants us to do. The last thing he wants us to do is walk away saying, I'm going to be like Abraham. I'm going to be like David. I'm going to be like Moses. What Hall of Fame mentality does is it strips away all of the negatives about the person and just puts out the positives. And, and now, like in baseball, no matter what your accolades may be in relation to baseball, if you don't meet this set of other standards of really big errors, bad things, no pun intended with errors there, but really bad things that you may have done, doesn't matter how good of a baseball player you are, you aren't going to get into the Hall of Fame. But once you're there, we sanitize the rest of your life. And that's what we have a tendency to do with these characters. Abraham, do you really want to be like Abraham? Guys, be a husband that denies you're married to your wife and tell him that you're, she's your sister so that another man of power can have her to do whatever he wants to do and you save your skin. Be like Abraham, right? Be like Moses, who disobeyed God and got so angry at the people that he smacked a rock when God told him to speak to it and completely disobeyed God and never got into the promised land because of it. Be like Moses. You get my point? We strip it away, we sanitize it, and we say, be like these people. And that's how we approach these stories. I think the last thing that the writer wants us to do is walk away and be like these characters after he spent an entire letter pointing us to Jesus, who he is and what he's done and how we should be like him. So the first thing I want to start with this morning as we start Hebrews 11 and we look at these different characters is to understand that we don't want to go away being like Abel or being like any of the other characters. We want to walk away understanding what the writer wants for us to hear here. He wants us to learn what living by faith looks like in the lives of ordinary people. Every one of these individuals was an ordinary, everyday people, person, like you and like me. They weren't super saints. They weren't superheroes. They were just everyday people. He wants us to see that belief in God and belief in God's promises will lead to different life choices from those who reject God and don't believe his promises. He wants us to see how faith plays out in the life of an individual. Not so that we can be like that individual, but so that we can seek to be people of faith, to pursue faith. Each of these human examples, whether the story is as brief as Abel's or even briefer with Enoch's, or as long as Abraham's story, or any other person that's mentioned here, each of these human examples display to us that endurance in obedience to God is possible when the righteous person 
because of his or her faith in God, chooses to live by faith in God. How many times in your walk with Christ as a child of God have you reached a point, maybe for some of you this has never happened, but how many times have you reached a point where you say, I can't do this anymore? It's too hard. The price is too great. How many of you have had a friend or a family member walk away from you and break a relationship because you simply want to live faithfully for Christ? And deep down inside, you think to yourself, I don't know that I can do this. Or whatever the case may be, I mean, I can make a whole list of things this morning. Each of these people show us different aspects of the things we face as followers of Christ. So we can see those things as we go on. But there there are those times for many of us where we reach a point of, I just don't know. God, you're asking too much. And what... The writer of Hebrews wants us to see, as he's spoken about endurance and faith in endurance and righteousness in endurance, he wants us to see it is possible to live by faith. It is possible to faithfully obey our Father and faithfully pursue to be like Christ no matter the situations. We can relate to these people because I said they are ordinary, everyday people. There's nothing special about them as people. They were flawed people. They were flawed people who sinned just like I sin and you sin. We're going to talk about Abel. We're going to talk about Enoch. Very short stories in Scripture. But however long Abel lived and however long Enoch lived, they were people who sinned. We're going to hear next week that Enoch walked with God and was not because God took him. And that's all we're told. And I grew up believing that Enoch was this super saint who never sinned. Because he walked with God and God took him, the reality is Enoch was a sinner. Enoch was not perfect. But he lived by faith. Just like we can. Consider the sins of Abraham and David. I already mentioned Abraham. David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. And yet he's listed in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith. So again, they're not here for us to imitate, but they are here for us to see the extraordinary power of God displayed in and through the lives of flawed, ordinary people who by his grace live in faith. When we walk away from Hebrews 11, The writer wants us to see an awesome, magnificent, powerful God 
who can work in and through jars of clay. And if we miss that, we've missed the point of Hebrews 11. As a result of these stories, we're encouraged to believe God and thus obey God, whatever his will holds for our lives. If you're here this morning and life is going swimmingly, I'm happy for you. Probably the last thing on your mind this morning, if your life is going swimmingly, is I need God. For those whose lives are going swimmingly, not to be judgmental here, it's just the reality. For those whose lives are going swimmingly, they're typically thinking about the next promotion, the next house, the next car, the next vacation. Because as someone once told me, I don't need that right now. I used to work with a person uh, when we were in Wisconsin and uh, he was a sales rep for a company and we got to be really good friends over a lot of years. And one, one time he came up to meet with me and see me and he just unloaded about what was going on in his life. And his life was just collapsing around him. Everything was just falling apart. And, and he said, I want to talk with you about God and what's happening in my life. I want some answers. You have answers. And I said, Jim, we can, we can talk right now. He said, I can't today. I've got to go. But the next time I'm back, I want to talk. I said, great. So he came back a few months later. When he came back, after we got through everything with business, I just said, so Jim, you brought this up a number of months ago. So do you still want to talk? And he said, no, no, no. I, don't, I, I needed that then. I don't need it now. Everything's fine. My point in that is, it isn't just Jim, is it? We pray a lot harder when life is not going swimmingly than we do when it is. But then on the flip side, oftentimes when life goes sideways, we have a tendency to get mad at God. So we've got a problem both directions. We don't need Him when things are good, And we get mad at him when things go sideways. And Hebrews 11 says, I want you to see what God can do in a person's life when they choose to live by faith. And I want you to trust in God. The first person who falls into the category of a righteous one who lived by faith in Hebrews 11 and obeyed God, whatever that meant for his life, is a guy named Abel. We're not told much about Abel here. His story occupies one verse in this long letter. Most likely, the original readers of the letter of Hebrews know it's written to who. The letter of Hebrews is written to who or whom? Jews. Hebrews. That's why it's called the letter to Hebrews, just because you're looking drowsy this morning and I need to bring you back here. Gave you a softball question there. It's written to Jews. You mention Abel to Jews, they know who he is. 
They didn't need a lot of background information. They knew the story. In those days in particular, Orthodox practicing Jews memorized the Torah. They memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy before they were a teenager. So when you mention Abel, they know who Abel is. They know the story. It's, it's right there for them. But for us, we're not as familiar with him. And sometimes myths can begin to grow around these characters. So I would like to, as briefly as possible, go back to Genesis 4 and look at the story of Abel and what happened there. So Genesis 4, and the story is found in verses 1 to 16. We are, as one writer puts it, um, Zach Eswine wrote the World Commentary on Ecclesiastes, and he refers to Ecclesiastes and life under the sun as living in the rubble of Eden. Uh, We live in the rubble, the catastrophe that took place in Eden. And this story in chapter 4 follows on the heels of that catastrophe of Adam and Eve and takes place in the early rubble of Eden. Adam and Eve, because of their sin that resulted, and this is key to catch, Adam and Eve's sin resulted from their disbelief in the promises of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that that way. Faith is belief in the promises of God. Faith is not trust. Just to review over the last few weeks, faith is not trust. Faith is belief. And that belief is so strong that we place our trust in something or someone. God had spoken to Adam and Eve. He had made promises to them. He had warned them. And we think of promises as good things. Promises can be negative things too. God promised them that in the day that they ate that fruit, they would die. He promised them that. He kept his promises. But Adam and Eve did not believe in the promises of God. They did not believe that he would say what he said he would do, whether they were pleasant promises or unpleasant promises, they didn't believe. They didn't live by faith. And sin came into the world. And sometime thereafter, and we don't know exactly when this took place, we knew that we know that Seth was born to Adam and Eve when 130 years had passed. But we don't know how long it was when Cain and Abel were born. But sometime in the course of time, as it says in verse 3, in the course of time, Cain and Abel were born. Cain was the first and Abel was the second. Both of these men, again, I'm going to keep saying this all through Hebrews 11, both of these men were ordinary everyday people, Cain and Abel. We might refer to them as blue-collar workers. There weren't any white-collar workers yet that we're aware of. They were blue-collar workers. They were what we call the salt of the earth, farmers. Some of you have not lived very close to farmers, 
in the sense of knowing what farm life is, is like. I grew up with a dad who worked on a dairy farm until he was 18 and got out of there. My grandfather was a dairy farmer. We lived 12 years in Tama, learned a lot about farming, and I still know, like, you know, this much about farming compared to what farmers know. But Cain and Abel were farmers. Nothing special about them. Just plain old-fashioned farmers. And like here in Iowa, it appears that Cain was most likely a grain farmer and Abel a sheep farmer. We like to say Abel was a shepherd because that sounds really good and sounds really neat and makes Abel look like this. He was a sheep farmer. He was a farmer. He took care of animals. Cain took care of grain. Both noble professions. But there came a day when both of these men decided to bring an offering to God. We don't know why. We're not told why they brought these offerings. We're not told that if they knew they were supposed to bring an offering. We don't know if there had been instructions about an offering. We don't know if they'd been told what kind of offering to bring. There's no evidence for that. There's all kinds of speculation about it, but there's no clear evidence. All we know is that one day, in the course of time, they brought an offering. And both of them brought offerings that were a product of their labor. I would guess that at this point in time, it was a cashless society. So they didn't bring an offering of money. They brought an offering of what they produced. Cain brought an offering of grain, fruit of the ground, as we're told, and Abel offered some of his sheep. And then in the midst of their offering, something very unexpected happened. God rejected, flat out rejected Cain's offering. And he accepted Abel's offering. How we know that God, how, how we, we don't know how they knew that Cain's was rejected and Abel's was accepted. There's nothing in the story that tells us how they knew, but they knew. Cain knew that God said, I reject your offering. It doesn't say that God said, I don't want that. God just flat out said, I reject your offering. And Abel's, God said, I accept your offering. And it goes further. What we learn in Hebrews verse 4 of chapter 11 is that God not only accepted Abel's offering, he counted it to him as righteousness. And so what we learn from that is God not only accepted the offering, he accepted the person. And he affirmed something about them. You know, we say today, let me put it this way first. With God and Cain, God not only rejected the offering, he rejected Cain. In contrast to accepting Abel. Now we say today, love the sinner, hate the sin. And that's a good phrase. There's nothing wrong with that. But the other side says, if you hate what I do, you hate me. 
And in reality, that is what's happening here with Cain and Abel. God is accepting not only the offering of Abel, but according to Hebrews 11:4, he proclaims him as righteous and accepts him as a person as well, whereas with Cain, he rejects him, rejects the offering, and he rejects the person. Again, there's a few theories advanced as to why Cain's was rejected. There's about three main theories. All of them are theories because it doesn't tell us. We just know that Cain's offering was rejected. Now imagine you're Cain. You're the firstborn. You're the oldest. Those of you who are the younger in your family, like me, I'm the third born. I was, my brothers were a year apart. They're six and five years older than me. And I gotta tell you, I was persecuted. It was a hard, hard life. I had to sit in the middle seat in the back of Volkswagen Beetle between my brothers who were five and six years older than me. Elbows the whole way. It was hard. It was a, my hard life started when I was very, very young. My parents would go away for dinner and my brothers would beat up on me, literally beat up on me. And they told me, if you ever tell mom and dad, we're going to beat up on you harder. I was not smart enough to figure out that if I told mom and dad, it would never happen again. So I got beat up every week. And one night, it was so bad because... You know, I had this slight little problem of a really smart mouth. It was a teeny problem. It wasn't a big problem like my brother's big problems. But I I had a very smart, sarcastic mouth, even as a seven, eight-year-old. I got wrapped around a bus stop pole at five years old because I smarted off to a high schooler when we were waiting. I didn't have very many brains was the, was the reality. I ended up with a concussion that day from from that incident. But I remember one night where my, my one brother was so mad at me for what I said to him. He had me in the dining room by the collar on my back over me, picking me up and slamming me down on the floor, just picking me up and slamming me and picking me up and slamming me and yelling at me. So now you know why my brain does not work correctly. My other brother pulled him off of me, but it was, it was pretty much life in the Yankee household. We had some fun together, but not very much. So if you're, if you're the younger brother, you know, or sister, you know how evil those firstborn can be, right? It's just inherently part of their life. It's who they're born to be. It started with Cain, and it has never ended for these firstborns. They need Jesus. The rest of us are perfect when we're born, but the firstborns are horrid. But here's Cain, the firstborn, the power broker, bringing offering, and snot-nosed little Abel gets accepted, and Cain gets rejected. Try not taking that personally. Just put yourself in Cain's shoes. I came with my offering. I gave up something that I could have kept for myself. And, And God says he doesn't want it. And he doesn't want me, basically. And pretty boy Abel over there, he gets all the good stuff. 
Mom and dad, you didn't treat him the same way you treated me. Have you heard that one? If, if you're the younger one. You totally changed when you, when you had them. And Cain gets offended, to say the least. We're told that he is enraged. Very enraged. There's a modifier with the word. He is as angry and incensed as a person can be. In my mind, I've known people like that. There are people who have a tendency to throw things and shout. I used to work for a guy that when he got really mad, stuff would start flying in the room. He literally would start throwing stuff in the room. He was a senior vice president for a Christian college. And he, you'd be dodging stuff. As everyone in that wing of the building could hear him screaming at you, I picture Cain. And it wasn't like he had to bring an offering. It wasn't like he had to do it. And what did he get for his trouble? Nothing but rejection. In the midst of his temper tantrum, if you will read this here, and I want you to catch this. Verse 4, Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and, and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are, you angry? why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. It's, it's, that means it, it desires to rule you, to control you. But you must rule over it. In the middle of Cain's temper tantrum, God himself comes to Cain and talks to him. How merciful is God? He's already rejected Cain. He had no regard for Cain or for his offering. And yet in mercy, he comes to Cain and says, listen, bud, let's paraphrase. Calm down. There's a way out of this. There's a way to be accepted. Do what you're supposed to do. Parents, have you ever said anything to your kids that way? Listen, you messed up. You were wrong. You disobeyed. There's a way around this in the future. There's a way out of this right now. And what do those kids usually do? You get the whole liturgy, literary, uh, you know what I mean, liturgy again from those children about how unfair you are and how rotten you are. Because parents are born stupid and we don't know what to do. And that's what Cain does with God here. Can you imagine if God came to you in the midst of your pity party and said to you, Haley, listen, that didn't go so well. Let's do this. The one we call all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise, who is above all the creation, who we want to bring glory to, 
he comes to Abel and says, that, that didn't work. Why are you angry? Just do what you're supposed to do and there won't be a problem. And Cain's response to that God is just like our response to that God when we say, it's not fair. Why me? And Abel, or Cain, being told that the rejection is not final and that there is a way to make it right, whatever it was that he missed that we're not told about, Cain being told that sin is waiting to pounce on him and conquer him, to rule him and control him, chooses another path than what God offers. I can't help but read the story of Cain and Abel and not feel a bit of deja vu. Because there were two people not too long before him who stood at a crossroads as a serpent said to them, has God really said? And sin desired to rule over his parents, and it did. And God says to Cain, don't let that happen to you. What's interesting to me is the sin had not taken control of him yet, according to what God said. It was crouching. It's crouching at the door. It desires to rule you. You've got to conquer it. And instead, he yields to sin and is conquered by the sin. And the outcome we know about. He found his brother. He lured him into a field and he murdered him in the midst of the field. I find that kind of interesting. Cain lured Abel into his turf. One who was a worker of the ground and raised the crops in the fields. He lures Adam into his turf and kills him simply because he was accepted by God, simply because by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. That was all he did. And Abel, according to Jesus, became the first in a long line of those killed because of their obedience to God. In Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of Abel being the first to shed blood in obedience to God. And then through the Old Testament story, he mentions the last. And while Abel became dead, Cain in faithlessness became a slave to sin. That's the outcome of that story. Who ended up worse off? The one who became the slave to sin or the one who died? Let's go back to Hebrews 11 now. And I want you to see what he has to say about the story specifically. By faith, verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain 
through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Again, this is in the context of endurance and faith and righteousness and promises. I want you to first see a link between verse 2 and verse 4. In verse 2, the writer says, For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. And in verse 4, he says, a little ways into the sentence, through which he, Abel, was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. In verse 4, we learn that Abel was one of those men of old who was commended and that that commendation came from God. The word commendation is linked to the idea of a witness who testifies regarding the actions of a person as certain events took place. We have court of law. We bring in witnesses. And those witnesses take the stand and give testimony about what they saw, what they witnessed. That's the idea of this word, that God actually testifies himself to the fact that Abel was a man of faith. He is commended by God. He is proclaimed by God. But he isn't just proclaiming the actions of the person like we would do in a court of law. If I witnessed some a murder out in back of the building and I was brought in as a witness to testify, all I can tell you about really in that court is what I saw. And because a person's testimony can be, or their, what, they, what they believe they saw can be incorrect based on what happened in the situation, my testimony is only valid so far. I don't get the chance to stand or sit in the witness box and say, and I also know that that person is a very evil person. And I know that they want to murder whoever they can murder. I don't get to say that. All I can do is testify about what I believe I saw. But what we're told here about God is God can actually see into the heart of the person. And he not only testified about what Abel did, he testified about the person himself. God knows the heart. And God proclaims, he testifies as a witness to the fact that Abel was righteous. God declared Abel righteous. And how are people to know that God declared Abel righteous? We know it because God accepted his gift. When God accepted Abel's gift, God said, that is a righteous man. He's a sinner. He's a flawed, ordinary human being. But God said, he's a righteous man. Now it's important to note, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. He is not, the the writer here is not saying that Abel's offering itself, what he offered, is what made him 
It, it did not make him righteous in God's eyes. The author's not saying that because Abel um, brought this particular offering, he was righteous. Nor is he saying that Abel's act of offering, how he did the offering, made him righteous before God. The writer does say that Abel's offering was more acceptable, but the context tells us the focus of the writer. It's not what he brought that made him righteous. It is not how he brought it, any any routine that made him righteous. But if we go back to verse 38 of chapter 10, Remember, the writer quoted God speaking to Habakkuk where he said, my righteous one shall live by faith. That drives the context of what comes in chapter 11. By using that statement, God is establishing an unbreakable connection between faith and righteousness and obedience. People of faith People who believe in who God is and his promises are declared righteous by God. That's an eternal, internal reality. People of faith are declared righteous by God internally. You can't see that. I can't see that. It's internal. But people of faith will act in righteous, obedient ways, and that is an eternal, external reality. You can't see what's in me. God can. But you can't see what's in me, and trust me, you don't want to see what's in me. You will fire me before I'm done this morning if you see who I really am as a person. But people of faith act in certain ways. James says, you show me your faith without works, I will show you my faith by my works. It's an external reality that where faith is present and righteousness is present, the life is lived out in a certain way. So he begins verse 4 with a clear foundation. By faith, the internal reality that is present Abel offered a more acceptable offering, an external reality. We know that what Abel did, whatever he did and whatever his offering was that he brought, however he offered it, it was a result of faith. That's what the writer wants us to get. He does not want us to get bogged down in details of the sacrifice itself. He wants us to understand that Abel did what he did as a result of faith. And when when he acted upon that faith, God confirmed the righteousness of Abel because he accepted Abel's sacrifice. God acknowledged the righteousness that was present because it was driven, it was created and it was driven by the faith that was present. And therefore, we can also conclude in reverse that Cain's offering was not offered in faith. 
Abel offered his offering in faith. Cain did not offer his offering in faith, and therefore it did not result from a righteous heart. In fact, we can see what was present internally in Cain from how he acted going forward. What did he do when God said, sin crouches at the door and wants to rule you? He brushed God aside, formulated a plan, took his brother out, and killed him in the field because he had an unrighteous heart. There was not faith present. There was not righteousness present. His actions testified to the unrighteousness that drove him. So how does this apply to us today? All of this about Abel about faith and righteousness is tied to what we call worship. That's the bottom line. The first example that the writer of Hebrews wants to present to us is that faith drives worship. Faith fuels worship. And I would say this, true worship or false worship is driven by faith. What you believe and so much so that you will put your trust in it. Whatever your idol is, it will, your belief in that idol and what it can do for you will drive what goes on with your life. And you will make decisions that other people will look at and go, I'm not sure what's going on there. That doesn't make any sense to me. And they will try to talk to you about it. And you'll blow it off and go right on your way. Because you have invested strong belief in this idol that it will give you what you want. And it will drive you to act in unrighteous ways. False faith. Wrong placed faith, so to speak. But true faith produces a worship of God that is acceptable to God. It's paired with righteousness. And worship is not about how much we put in the offering box in the hallway. And worship is more than singing on Sunday morning. Worship is much bigger than that if it comes from a heart of faith. The story of Abel is a story of true worship that issues from a heart made righteous by faith and results in external displays of behavior. Specifically, it is about faith in us producing a righteousness in us that drives us to a growing pursuit of Christ-likeness in our lives evidencing itself in a life of worship and that worship goes far beyond Sunday morning. It's far bigger than what we do here on Sunday morning. We have gathered collectively. We have gathered as the body of Christ in a local expression called a church to worship our God. And we do worship him through our singing. 
And we do worship him by listening and responding to the proclamation of his word. We do worship in the humble admission of his glory and our need of him in what we call prayer. We worship in lovingly ministering to one another as sons and daughters and by acknowledging God's provision and affirming his purposes in the church by giving of our material possessions. Those are all things we do here on Sunday morning when we gather. If you could see the sheet or the list of, um, that, that uh, Scott works off and everybody else works off of. Oh, it's been changed. This used to say worship in song, worship in song, worship in scripture reading, worship in prayer, worship in sermon, worship in song, song, song. We don't worship in announcements. Worship in song, worship in benediction. We worship in everything we do here this morning. And the worship team is all of us. That's who our worship team is, not just the people who are up here on this platform. And worship doesn't end when we stop singing. Worship is collectively, it's a corporate worship that we're doing together on Sunday mornings for as much possibly as three hours on a Sunday morning. But true worship of our Father is, Father is to continue the other 165 hours in each week that we live. This is just a sliver of what true worship is supposed to look like. True worship is found in pursuing Christ-likeness by befriending the lost and loving our enemies and giving of our time and our energy and our emotions and our skills and our possessions to minister to the needs of those around us. True worship is found in the display of love and righteousness of Jesus in us through a life that is kind and gentle and patient and loving and joyful and at peace and faithful and, con and controlled. True worship is not checking off a list of rules it is the overflow of an internal change that comes through the power and work of the Holy Spirit. True worship realizes that winning may look and feel like losing. I want to say that again. True worship may look and feel like losing. Rarely do you find a Christian author or speaker referring to Abel as an example of success. I've read a lot of Christian books. I've heard a lot of Christian messages over the years. And when somebody starts to talk about success, first of all, I start to get this nasty little feeling in my throat. But second of all, they don't talk about Abel. But Abel is the first person mentioned an example of a life lived by faith and what faith will look like. And to this day, Abel's death, what a loser. To this day, Abel's death testifies that he was righteous and lived by faith, according to Hebrews 11. True worship, beginning with faith, understands that the praise of God is greater than the accolades of any human. 
And in the end, true worship results in what the heart of faith wants most in life, more of God himself. When you go to worship, you are hoping to get more of whatever it is you worship. Abel is the first example in the story of God and his interaction with man. Abel is the first example of someone who lived by faith and worshipped in righteousness before God. And when he did, God said to the entire world and still says today, that is what worship is supposed to look like because it comes from a heart of faith. It comes from a well of righteousness that I have given him. There's a lot more I could say on this topic. I mean, there's just a ton and I've gone long this morning. But I would encourage you this morning to ask why you worship. Why did you get out of bed on a Sunday morning and, and most of you took a shower and brushed your teeth? Why did you do that this morning to be here? And if your answer is because that's what we do on Sundays, I'm going to push back on that and say that might not be true worship. Because you're checking boxes. You know, Cain probably would have argued that he was a believer worshiping God. He brought an offering. He came alongside of his brother. He participated. He went through the motions. And yet God said, no. There's no faith connected to that. There's no righteousness present. I don't want it. I want you to want me and to believe me. So are you here this morning wanting him? Or is it a charade? Is your life a pursuit of Christ-likeness internally and externally? Or is it simply a facade to maintain relationships that are valuable to you? Is what we're all seeing in each other a result of something internal or is it something we paste on? Is your behavior different outside of this group than it is when you're with this group? I want to say to you this morning, that everything externally will naturally flow from what exists internally. And if not, well, it does. And if internally there's not faith and there's not righteousness, it's going to be a bugger to come here every Sunday and put on the face and play the game. And some people reach a point of saying, I don't, I just want to be anonymous. Let me go someplace where I can be anonymous. You know, Northbrook is a place where we want you to be known for who you are in the midst of all your messes 
and to come alongside of you and walk with you in those messes and love you and help you to grow in the Christian life. People who don't want that, who want to do the checkbox, don't want that. It's not why everybody else isn't here. I'm not saying that. But I think that's what worship is supposed to be about. Coming together as real people with real messes to worship a real God. Acknowledging that they are not perfect, but they want to become more like Christ. That is true worship. I would encourage you this morning to think about what's going on internally, asking God to produce faith in you. If you're his child, there isn't more righteousness he can produce inside of you. You have the righteousness of Christ. The question is, will you keep in step with the Spirit and long to be with Jesus? And that's what I would encourage you to do this morning because that is what it means to worship. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take your word again and use it in our lives. There is so much more that could be said because the Bible is part of its greatness and its storyline. Is the God of the ages condescending to humanity who is finite. And in that place where you meet man, in some cases, worship explodes from the heart of that person. And there's so many places where we can see it in Scripture. I pray, Father, again, that you would, in my life, cause me to live by faith. Help me to desire to want to be like Jesus more. Help me to live in ways that manifest the internal righteousness. And Father, I pray that that would continue to grow more and more natural in my life because it is present in my soul. Father, I pray that if there is one here this morning who is your child, but right now is just pretty much going through motions because of the situations of life, I pray that you would strengthen them, that you would increase their faith, that they would believe in stronger ways who you are and what you have promised. And may they want you more. If there are those here this morning who don't know you as their father, God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would do the work of convincing them of their sin, convincing them of their need of Jesus' righteousness, and convincing them of the coming judgment. I pray that faith would begin in their hearts, a true faith for you, not for everything else a belief in you and your promises. I pray that you would bring righteousness to their lives. And I pray that you would cause them by your power 
to live and walk in righteousness. Father, we love you. We exalt your name. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.